But yeah, we're going to read uh, Matthew chapter 6, uh, verses 19 to 24, uh, to follow along. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Well, thanks so much for your welcome. It's a great um, joy and privilege to be here at St. Mary's. I'm going to lower this because I'm not as tall as Rob. Um, You have prayed for us faithfully for a very long time, and uh, we're really very grateful. The partnership that we have in the gospel with this church has been a huge support and encouragement for us over many years. Um, So thank you. Thank you very much, and please do keep praying. It makes a huge difference. Let me pray as we come to the Scriptures. Keep your Bibles open at that passage, and we'll be digging into Matthew chapter 6. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a living and a speaking God. You're a God who is here, uh, and you want us to hear your voice as we turn to your Word. Please would your Spirit bring the Scriptures to life for us. Uh, We pray that our hearts would receive what you have to say, and that you would please help us to obey your word to us tonight. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, as you heard in the interview, Rachel and I spent some years in Nairobi in Kenya. And uh, early on in our time there, Rachel worked in a project that was uh, serving a group of women from Kibera, which is one of the largest informal settlements or slums in sub-Saharan Africa. This was a little project that was uh, trying to help women provide for their families using um, craft-making skills. And the things that the women made were then uh, sold to generate an income. Some of the women in the project were naturally more artistic and more creative than others. Um, They made more beautiful craft products and they worked more quickly. And the project had been set up in such a way that this meant that those women, the more creative, more artistic ones, uh, earned more than those who weren't as quick and weren't as able. So classic kind of market forces, capitalism at work. The trouble was that the women women from Kibera were not Western capitalists. They came from a very different world. Now, probably most of us, and in fact, almost certainly all of us, will have grown up uh, with a worldview shaped by Western capitalism. And what that means is that you will tend to believe that the market can grow. Let me explain what I mean by that with an illustration of a pie. If you're a Western capitalist, and there isn't enough pie for everyone, what do you do? You make a bigger pie. If you keep making the pie bigger and bigger, more and more people can eat from it. 
But the women from Kibera, in fact, like probably most people around the world today, were not Western capitalists. They believed that the size of the pie was fixed. Anthropologists call that the idea of limited good. The pie is fixed. It's limited to a particular amount of pie. It can't get bigger. What that obviously means is that if I take a great big fat slice of pie, that means that there are only little tiny slices of pie for all of the rest of you. So from their worldview, if some of the women were making a much bigger income, it wasn't an incentive to believe that everyone could make a bigger income. Rather, it created jealousy and envy. They looked on their colleagues' success with a lot of hostility. So what I've just described to you is pretty much a classic development dilemma. A very well-intentioned project was set up, but it was set, out, set up without truly realizing how much it was rooted in a Western and a secular way of thinking. But the participants in the project didn't share that way of thinking. Actually, they have a much more holistic and integrated view of the world. Their idea of limited good, as I've described it, led to envy and jealousy. And it's something that I guess I've described as a problem. And it is a problem if you operate from within Western secularism. But actually, in much of the world, the idea that there are limited resources makes a lot of sense. It reflects the reality of how many people live. And so if you operate from a concept of limited good, what that means is that you share resources. You don't try and hoard things. You don't want too big a slice of the pie. You want to try and share the pie up equally and make sure that everyone gets them. What that then prevents is from some people getting very rich, but it also prevents others from getting too poor. Now, the outcome of this story for the um, project I'm talking about was frankly not very pretty. Some of the women looked at the success of their colleagues with great jealousy and envy. You could say that their eye was evil. And it led to jealousy and breakdown of relationships. Now at this point you're thinking, David, that's an interesting story. What on earth has it got to do with our Bible reading from Matthew chapter 6? Well, as that passage was read for us, uh, I'm sure you'll have noticed that it fell into three distinct sections. There were two places that you can store up treasure in verses 19 and 20. Two ways of using your eyes in verses 21 and 23. And two masters that we might serve in verse 24. Now the bit at the beginning and the bit at the end, the treasure and the masters, those two sections are not all that difficult to understand. They're very hard to do, but they're not difficult to understand. The bit that I think is a bit complicated and needs a bit more unpacking is that funny little section in the middle, the part about the eye as the lamp. 
think it feels strange and a bit foreign to us, those verses, but I think it would make perfect sense to my friends and colleagues in Kenya. They would quickly grasp what Jesus is saying in these verses. So I'm going to start in the middle, verses 21 to 23, and I've called this little section, Two Ways to Look. Jesus said, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Those verses are complicated for us um, for two reasons. Firstly, because they reflect a very different understanding about how eyes work. And secondly, because our translation hasn't really helped us work out exactly what's going on here. Now, the anatomical view of the eye is that it works um, like this. Light shines in through your pupil, enters your eye, hits the lens just behind your pupil, and the lens focuses the light onto your retina, uh, there are rods and cones at the back of your eye that turn that light stimulus into a nerve stimulus and transmit it down the optic nerve into your brain. And if you took an anatomical view of the eye and you were writing verse 21, what would you say? You would say, the eye is the window of the body. The eye is a window, it lets light in. But in Jesus' time, that wasn't how people understood what their eyes did or how their eyes worked. And Jesus' teaching in this verse speaks into the cultural context that he was in. So he used the analogy of an eye in the way that people at his time would have understood it. Obviously, Jesus is the creator God who made everything, including our eyes, but he chooses to teach in a way that his original hearers would have understood. That's why he says the eye is the lamp of the body. And the reason he says that is because in the first century, people thought that your eye was like a torch or a flashlight. So the understanding was not that your eye was a window that let light in, but rather your eye is like a torch that is shining light out. And as your eye shines light out, it enables you to see. And so in a very significant way, your act of seeing in the first century reflected what was inside you and was linked to the state of your heart. Now, the other reason that this little section is hard is because uh, the translation about where it says, if your eye is bad, or some of the translations say, if your eye is unhealthy, kind of sounds like conjunctivitis, doesn't it? That is not what is going on here. Literally, what Jesus is saying here is, if your eye is evil, evil eye. Now, many of you will have been on holiday to the Mediterranean, perhaps to Greece. Um, some of you perhaps have been to Tunisia or Morocco. I guess some might have been to Israel. And in many of those places, you can buy beautiful little necklaces and trinkets 
of a blue bead with a blue eye that people wear sitting uh, just here at the bottom of their necks. Or you can buy a little brooches or ornaments which have a picture of a hand held up like this. That little blue bead or the held up hand traditionally charms that were warding off the evil eye. What is the evil eye? Well, the evil eye is a belief that if you look at something, if I look at something with jealousy and envy in my heart, my jealous looking can create a space in which evil spirits can bring harm and damage to those that I'm jealous and envious of. It's a very common belief uh, around the world still today. In many uh, traditional Muslim cultures, you would never say to a mother of a young baby, oh, your baby is beautiful. Your baby looks beautiful today. Because that might be a jealous or envious thought that is creating space for evil spirits to cause harm on the child. So to get around that, you might in some cultures hear people say, oh, mama, your baby is looking startlingly ugly this morning. Everyone would know that that's actually a compliment, but is avoiding the problem of evil eye. So Jesus is speaking into a culture that believed in the evil eye. He's speaking into it, and remarkably, I think, He's critiquing it. So what is Jesus actually saying here? Well, Jesus is saying that the way that we look at things really, really matters. Because how I look at something reflects my inner life, reflects the state of my heart. So if my eye is evil then I will look at things with jealousy and envy. And that reflects the state of a heart that is dark. But if my eye is healthy, then I'll look at things generously and open-handedly. And that comes from a heart filled with light. Put like that, these verses are, again, easier to understand, but still hard for us to do. So imagine my neighbour drives home one evening in a brand new BMW. If my eye is healthy, then I'll knock on her door and say, oh, that's so good that you've got a new car. What a blessing. Tell me all about it. Can I rejoice with you at this great provision that you're enjoying? But if my eye is evil, I'll be whinging and grumbling to Rachel. I'll be leafing through the Mercedes catalogue. I'll be wanting more. I'll be wanting better. I'll be wanting bigger. You see, Jesus was speaking to a culture that knew that how we look at things really matters. It's actually a spiritual issue. But he was also critiquing the very same culture. In a culture that says jealousy and envy makes space for the devil to work, Jesus is saying, no, David Williams, David Williams, no, stop. 
Don't abrogate responsibility to Satan on this. No, the problem here is your dark heart. Anatomically, my, my eye is not a lamp, it's a window. But spiritually, in a very real way, my eye is exactly like a lamp. Because how I look at things, the attitude with which I look at things, reflects the state of my heart. My eye shines out the light or the darkness of my heart. And if my eye is healthy, I will look kindly with generosity, with a desire to bless, with a desire to share, with hospitality in mind. But if my eye is evil, then I will look with malice, with envy, with a desire to acquire more and more for myself or a desire to deprive others of what they have. An evil eye reflects a dark and sinful heart. Now, once we understand that my eye is the lamp of my body, not the window of my body, it makes more sense of the two little sections that lie on either side. So let's go back to verses 19 to 21, and I've called this two places for treasures. Verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Those verses have been brought um, painfully home to me and Rachel just recently. We have some lovely woolen jumpers. Um, you won't be surprised to know that in Australia we don't get them out very often, but when winter approaches, we will often get them out of the cupboard. This year, our lovely woolly jumpers were home to a large family of clothes moths. And I am able to confirm what Jesus says in these verses. Moths destroy. They're not very big, but they make a huge mess. Jesus' point here is very straightforward, isn't it? If we lay up treasure for ourselves on earth, we're investing in treasure that will perish. It may be actual moths in your clothes. It may be actual rust on your Ferrari. It may be real thieves in your home. Or it could be the 21st century version of all of those things. A stock market crash. Inflation. A run on the bank. A pension fund collapsing. Your country being invaded. All very believable in 2022. Treasures on earth will not last, but, Jesus says, there is treasure that endures, treasure in heaven that will never go mouldy, never go rusty, and can never be taken away from us. So what is treasure in heaven, and how do I lay up treasure in heaven? Well, I think, put very simply, Treasure in heaven is all those many hundreds of little acts that we do, strengthened and empowered and enabled by God's Spirit. All those good works, all those righteous deeds, 
that God graciously gives us to do. So, next week at work, you're in the coffee room and that super annoying colleague makes a spiteful comment. And you're just about to say something really abrasive back, but you catch yourself. And in God's grace, prompted by his spirit, you don't respond harshly, you respond with kindness and gentleness. And you've just laid up treasure in heaven. Each time you love someone with God's love, each time you're kind or patient or self-controlled as an aspect of the Spirit's fruit, you're laying up treasure in heaven. All those many little moments of a typical day which can seem so inconsequential to us are a potential treasure trove. And I think that makes sense of the section we've already looked at about our eyes. How I look at things reflects the state of my heart. So if I'm looking for opportunities to be kind, to be generous, to be gentle, to be loving then that looking flows from a heart filled with light. So Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, I'm tempted to look at my heart and ask, what do I treasure? But Jesus knows that if we put it that way around, we will far too easily let ourselves off the hook. Instead, he says, Look at your treasure, and that will tell you where your heart is. Two ways to look, two places for treasure, and finally, verse 24, one master to serve. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So why does all of this matter so much? Well, it matters because we can only serve one master. That's the challenging conclusion that Jesus is driving us towards in this passage. His teaching in the verse we've just read, did you notice? It's entirely black and white. It's binary, one or the other. Now, we love to read this verse as a grayscale verse, and it would be much easier if it was. The grayscale version of this verse goes something like this. Uh, hey, David, we've been looking at your percentages on the grayscale of God and money. And, and frankly, you know, it could do with a bit of a shift. At the moment, we're scoring you... 40% God and 60% money. So your challenge for this month, your key performance indicator, is to shift the percentages. See if you can slide it up to 70% God and 30% money. Now that isn't what Jesus is saying here at all. He says, I cannot serve two masters. Not that I shouldn't, but that I can't. Either God or it's money. 
no 60-40, no 70-30. It's either 100-0 or 0-100. And this matters, of course, because it's all about worship, isn't it? Am I worshipping God or am I an idolater worshipping money? So let me draw this to a conclusion. And if we put all of this together, we can see that Jesus is asking us three very closely connected questions. Questions that I think have been challenging for all human beings through human history, but are profoundly challenging for us today. Because we live in an extraordinarily secular and highly materialistic culture. And that, I think, makes these questions especially important for us in our time and in the culture that we live in. The first question is simply, are my eyes healthy? Are my eyes healthy or are my eyes evil? We've seen that this isn't about conjunctivitis or glaucoma. This is about the spiritual connection between my eyes and my heart. How do I look? Not how do I appear, but how do I perceive? How do I look? Do I look with an attitude of generosity and hospitality? Or do I look with envy and jealousy and selfishness? So easy for us to fall into sins of comparison, isn't it? My friend gets a new iPhone and suddenly my smartphone just isn't good enough. My neighbour's house goes up for sale and suddenly I'm dissatisfied about where I live. But Jesus' language is uncompromising. If I look at things like that, I have an evil eye connected to a dark heart. So how do I know if I have a dark heart? Well, that takes us to Jesus' second question, which is, where is my treasure? Now, the frightening reality, of course, is that if my heart is dark and I try to examine my own heart, then, of course, I will deceive myself. So Jesus' second question is much more penetrating. It doesn't allow me to look inwards and continue my self-deception, he asks me to look outwards and to ask where my treasure is. Where for me do true riches lie? What am I really investing in? Where have I honestly put my confidence? And how we answer the second question matters because of the third question which is very simple. Who is my master? This passage, like the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, invites us to serve the Lord Jesus as our master, to build our lives on the solid rock of the Lord Jesus Christ, to know from the passage later in Matthew's Gospel that he alone is the pearl of great price. And I give great thanks to God for you at St. Mary's, who over the many years that we have known this church, have modelled this passage to us. This building 
alone is one of many expressions of the extraordinary generosity of the church family here at St. Mary's. This and many other ways that you support gospel ministry, the way that you look through eyes that are healthy, from hearts that are whole, serving your master, the Lord Jesus. Are my eyes healthy? Yes. If my gaze is fixed on Jesus. Where is my treasure? My treasure is Jesus, the pearl of great price. Who is my master? Jesus. Only Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would please take the words of this passage and write them into our hearts, that our hearts might be filled with light and that our eyes might be healthy and that we might serve the Lord Jesus as our master. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, as we take a seat, I'm going to invite David back up. Um, David, uh, you're nearly at the finish line, but we've got some questions for you. Uh, thank you very much. I think we've got time for all of them. Um, someone says here, thank you so much for the questions, by the way. It's great to have these, and it's clear that a lot of them were well thought through, so thank you for engaging. Um, someone says here, my reality is more that I serve many masters rather than God. Some of these, oh, it's disappeared. <laughs> some of these, I wouldn't say, are even bad. Even money can be used for good. How do I serve God in these things? So that's a great question. And um, I think the answer to that question is to remember that God wants us to serve him as embodied, physical human beings. So we serve God uh, in our lives and our bodies. And, you know, we need to lie down and go to sleep and we need to get up. And God creates us... Um, in the Garden of Eden to work and to steward the world that he's put us in. So this, uh, this idea about you know, serving God as our master is not s- trying to separate off, it's not asking us all to go and live in a monastery and uh, you know, be hermits and um, try and walk away from the world. Rather, in all of those um, many things that the questioner refers to, like my job, or my school, or my uni, all of those things, in some senses, are are masters. But as you go to work, as you go to uni, as you go to school, whose approval are you seeking? Whose honour do you want to see? So if you're serving the honour of yourself, or um, your reputation, or your income, you will approach all of those things, job, school, uni in particular kinds of ways, but if you're serving the Lord Jesus as your master, you'll still go to work, you'll still go to uni, you'll still go to school, but you'll be engaging in those things to bring him glory and honour and praise and not yourself or your boss or your company or whatever it might be. That's very, very helpful. So not stopping those things, but don't stop. But, but a completely, don't, don't, well, I mean, completely different motivation yeah. for, for them. This yeah. isn't a call to monastic living. It's, you know, earlier in the sermon, um, you're a light on a hill. You're the salt of the earth. We're supposed to be there in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really part of the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not how to get out of the world, but how to live in the world mm-hmm. in a way that makes a difference.
Great. Thank you very much. Um, just to change the subject slightly, how does knowing about the evil eye affect us? What can we do about it? So, a uh, couple of very quick things to say um, on that. There may be some people in the room who the uh, idea of evil eye and the occult and charms are not hypothetical things. They may be something that you've experienced in your past or that you might come across with colleagues at work. That's, that's entirely possible. We were in Haversage in the Peak District last week and in a little shop in the middle of nowhere and um, the woman behind the checkout was wearing an evil eye um, necklace around her neck. I wondered if she knew what it meant. So this is th these are not hypothetical things, um, perhaps for some of us. But the other thing that I think it's it helpful for us to reflect on, just one of the reasons I spent some time unpacking the evil eye, is because it's good for us to recognize that the Bible actually is quite a cross-cultural document for us. Mm -hmm. And different cultures around the world um, will often help us to understand things that perhaps we're blind to in our own culture. Even our own translators don't translate, you know, if your eye is evil. But that, that's exactly what the Greek apparently says. I'm not very good at Greek, but the commentators tell me that. Um, but we kind of gloss that out because it doesn't mean anything to us. But the idea of an evil eye would have been very resonant in Jesus' time and for many people in many different cultures around the world today. Thank you very much. That's very clear. Um, just on this question, it's come up a few weeks, and I'm sorry because I haven't probably answered it, but uh, I'm so glad David's got it again. <laughs> um, treasures in heaven, is it a metaphor, or will there be real quantifiable treasure that we can store up and eventually receive? So is it a metaphor? Um, I guess in some senses it's a metaphor. I don't think that when we arrive in heaven there will literally be a treasure chest with kind of gold or rubies um, or um, beautiful jumpers without moths in, <laughs> in the treasure tre Sad, che <laughs> chest. But I think the Bible does make it clear that while for every Christian person our entry into heaven is only possible because of the free gift of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross on our behalf, that that is the only way that any of us can enter heaven. Nevertheless, for those Christians who have been forgiven and who enter heaven, um, there are different rewards. And I think 1 Corinthians uh, makes that clear. Some enter heaven and what they did in this life will be burned up as if straw, but other people enter heaven and what they did in this life will be refined as gold. And there is a sense that while we all enter heaven um, only and completely because of the death of the Lord Jesus on our behalf. Our lives after our conversion are bringing a reward. And that reward is real and won't be the same for everyone. Um, so in that sense, I think treasures in heaven isn't actually a metaphor. So sometimes I think we think, you know, I, I prayed the prayer and I've got my little kind of insurance ticket and now it doesn't matter how I live until I die and go to be with Jesus. That is far, far not the picture of the Christian life that the New Testament paints. Yeah, so 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 onwards would be a place to look at yeah. in a bit more detail. I'm glad you got the reference at this point. No, no, I, I, I wasn't sure myself. So, <laughs> um, uh, But I guess just to re-emphasize what you're saying, both are saved, but there's a sense in which one work is burnt up 
because it's not yeah. useful as, as the other. Yeah. yeah. Um, just finally, um, very uh, briefly, if we, if we may, how do you balance providing for yourself with uh, putting your loved ones in a good financial position and also not serving money? So I go back to what I said before, and, and we are supposed to live embodied Christian lives, um, going to work, going to school, going to uni, um, and there are things that we're called to do as Christians as part of that. Um, in Proverbs, we're told to look at the ant. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Uh, the ant stores up um, food in the summer to provide for itself in the winter. So clearly hard work is actually commended in scripture. We are supposed to provide for those that we love. Um, having said that, uh, I want to go back to something I said in the sermon. We do live in a profoundly um, materialistic and secular culture. So it's very easy for us to be deceived about what we think you know, mm -hmm. providing for actually means. I think Rachel and I have, have journeyed with, sadly, too many people who seemed excited about serving the Lord Jesus in cross-cultural mission or perhaps in ministry, um, but felt that you know, they, they just needed to, 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 to get the house first. And then, you know, or the, the mortgage was, was quite big, actually, and they, they couldn't, the rental wouldn't really cover the mortgage. So they needed to pay a bit more of the mortgage off, and oh, then they got a dog, and you know, couldn't really leave the dog behind. And suddenly... 20 years have passed and that little inkling that maybe missional ministry was possible has disappeared. Um, so we can't serve two masters. And it'd be great for us as a church community to be discussing that one another. We've got a chance afterwards mm. in Unite and Connect. Connect's um, 20s to 30s, Unite is 14 to 18. Um, but all of us to be chatting that over, over coffee because um, I think what you've really helpfully shown us is actually we're not actually very good at telling ourselves we need God's mm. word to, to, mm. to bring a light to it. Yeah. When I, very my, one of my earliest cross-cultural experiences was uh, as a medical student to go to Kathmandu. And I remember walking through the temple, Hindu temple district in Kathmandu and feeling this profound sense of spiritual oppression and spiritual darkness. My Kenyan friends described that feeling of profound spiritual oppression and darkness when they walk through our western shopping malls. Mm. We, we don't feel that, mm. Mm. but I think perhaps we should. Mm. I think I'll leave it on that point. Mm. Thank you, David, very much indeed. Vicky, you're going to lead us in our prayers. Let's pray.